Welcome to the RPG Bot Dot Masterclass. With me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Well, hello, adventurers. And today we have a special guest with us, Friday. Hi, I'm Friday, or is Friday. You might find me on the internet that way. I am a professional GM. That's my full-time job right now. And I have some other hobbies, like uh, game design. And I also am a game writer, and I do marketing and things like that. Awesome. So, Tyler, what is happening? Uh, well, I'm very excited. Uh, we brought Friday on to pick their brains. Uh, like Friday said, they're a professional DM plus other things. And Friday has kind of recently become a subject matter expert on being a professional dungeon master. Um, their blog, newsletter, and podcast, Dollars and Dragons, excellent, excellent resource. Uh, go check those out. So we're hoping Friday will give us basically like a cliff's notes of all of their uh, their best resources to, you know, help people get started as a professional DM, get up and running, and then um, hopefully when they're ready for that next step, you know, off to Dollars and Dragons to get the, the rest of the advice. So Friday, let, let's start with the basics. How long have you been a professional DM? I started as a stream GM in 2021, and I spent a about the whole year doing shows, putting together shows as like a producer and a GM and a player in some cases. And after that, I realized, oh, hey, wait, there's no money in this. So I better <laughs> do something slightly different so that I can make some money if I would like to move into tabletop and support it. I was mostly looking into just kind of on a lark to try it out. I ran a few sessions of Fandelver, for instance, over the summer. And then 2020 what year is it 2022 um january is when i really started to up my uh output and i was still working a full-time job at that time and then i scaled up from there uh in march to full-time and then i've been full-time ever since i, I want to ask the question here so you you said gm uh and so that implies lots of different games or at least a game that isn't dungeons and dragons in that experience at the time, you know, being a, a pro DM GM, uh, as well as stepping in and start playing and actually running games for folks kind of publicly as a, as a profession, what are some of the games that you've run during that time period? Great question. I think that it's important to note, and this is new information from Devin to start playing games, who's the founder and hangs out a lot and provides a lot of information from their stats. 75% of the games ran in January of this month in 2023 on Start Playing Games were D&D. That means 25% of them, which is a lot more than I anticipated. But because of current events, I think more people are trying different games. <laughs> so right now, I have been running since about June Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. And in addition to that, I have been running things like Alien RPG. And I recently ran Pathfinder 2nd Edition for the first time. In addition to other games like Pirate Borg and stuff like that. So how does your choice of a game system affect being a pro DM? You know, things you have a lot of experience with versus things that are new to you. Uh, some of the more obscure systems and the players that you have coming to the table. I think it depends on what you're trying to sell. So there's three main things that you want to keep in mind if you're a professional GM or you're thinking about doing it. Is that you have a player profile that's going to be attracted to your game and your 
GMing style. And then you have the game that you're trying to run. And then you have what your style is as a GM. And all of those things are interlinked. So your advertising needs to be drawing in the culmination of those things. For instance, I run a lot of vampire-oriented stories, gothic horror, horror stories. I also have a sense of humor, which, I mean, I don't say that like in a weird way, but like I run my games and people laugh regularly. We make jokes and things like that. So that's important to point out because that is part of my style. Some people don't run a table like that. It's important to identify those different things that make you unique. And then when you start advertising for that particular player, you can really hone it down by quite a bit. And then you have less of a filtering process. The less niche your advertisement is, the more filtering you have to do once they get to your server or at session zero or when you're setting up or anything. And it's a lot of wasted time. So the better your advertisements are, the more filtering that you're going to do. And we can get into that if you would like me to cover like those three pillars, or we can continue along with your set of questions. Sorry. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that would be very educational for us to go over that. So yeah. feel free. Okay. So generally during workshops that I run for the SPG community now and then, I talk about these three pillars. And these are the very basis of what you need to understand in order to post your advertisement and build a business on Start Playing Games. You need to understand what is your style. And the way that you find that out at first, if you're not very familiar, you don't have the confidence to really confidently like plant your flag, this is my style. You ask your players who you've run games for what draws them to the game, what keeps them at the table, what are the best things that I do better than other people that you played the game with, or how did I make you feel special and or how did I make the game feel special? What Once you understand those things, you create a big list. Yes. What if they say to me, it's the snacks? <laughs> then I think you have some work to do because okay, that's fair. That's fair. You cannot you cannot run a professional GM business online and only be providing snacks because uh, what are you going to uh, like? Yeah. Okay. Well, no, my dreams are dashed. Nice. Let's keep going. <laughs> Promising career in catering, though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you know, maybe you just need to work out an affiliate code with Uber Eats or something, and then maybe you can really be successful. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> it's not, I hope it's not lost for you, buddy. There's still time. Uh, well, sorry, Fareda, you were saying. Yeah. So for building up your profile, it's very important that you understand where, what are my do's and don'ts? Like, what are my limits for what I'm interested in running games as so for me it was very important especially since i was transitioning the year and a half ago that i'm really just myself all the time and so because i'm a queer i like to have a very queer friendly environment over half of my players are queer and that's just a natural consequence of just putting games out there and being a trans woman like people are interested to play with me because they feel like it's a safe space and like i represent um that sort of thing to people so for me, that was one. And then the secondly, I really enjoy like narrative storytelling and I really enjoy like horror beats and things like that. So combining all of those things, I really started to pick out the types of games that I was running. And then from there, I sort of honed that and I focused on what are the things that I'm really good at? I'm really good at pacing. I'm really good at voices and like narrative description. I have a narrative voice that I use. 
um, it, which is different than my normal voice, which is what I'm talking about right now. And then um, <laughs> I have like, generally I have very like high tension combats. I don't do filler combat. I don't do random encounters really. And that fits with my horror game style. So the stakes are always high if combat is going on. And then I have a lot of very comfortable like sharing time before and after games and during breaks and stuff. Um, I had to institute, I had to push the responsibility off myself because I am really bad about this, but I gossip a lot. So like the first part of my game is always just <laughs> basically just a gossip time and everybody gets really comfortable with each other and they start sharing stories and like personal stuff. And everyone really sees that more of like a home game aspect that they're looking for. Not everybody has access to like a game store nearby or like somewhere that they have a group of friends that all wants to play. So a lot of the people in my community have found that table in my server and playing with me either multiple times a week or playing with their group of friends there. And some of the tables who are unable to continue with me uh, after a year, they still play together in some other game. You know what I mean? So a lot of people are making friends at my table and that's kind of the atmosphere that I try to create. But to get back to my story, like I get in trouble, like because I allowed gossip time to get kind of out of control because everybody was having too much fun and I didn't want to go to work. So uh, they stretched from like they started at like 15 minutes, but then every game sort of like starts to redline it at like 50 minutes to like an hour of just gossip time. I actually had to appoint someone at every table to be the master of gossip and then put a timer on us so that we would actually play the game. <laughs> at an appointed time and like hammer the gavel like it is time to play dungeons and dragons <laughs> now how did your players handle that were they all like yeah okay we're i guess we're here to play D D. this is fine <laughs> um yeah i think it was a good institution because i also at the same time i don't want them to feel like they're paying me $40 a seat to just hear about my sex life. I mean, that's part of it for a lot of them, to be quite honest, is like they show up for that. And I'm very upfront about that in my profile. If you look at my profile, I have a very like sex positive environment. But uh, yeah, that's kind of just something that evolved naturally over time. It really just started with me trying to get people to engage more at the table. And it didn't start with that. It just started with me just talking about dating apps and like me being on dating apps at the time before I met my long-term girlfriend that I'm with now. And then it's just kind of evolved from there of other people like sharing. And then like, you know, I, there are a couple tables where they're not into it. So I don't share that aspect or I give them like content warnings and then they take their headphones off or whatever. But like, yeah. Cool. All right. And so we, we were, we were talking through the three pillars and what you're highlighting, I feel like is the, the importance, like you found your niche and your niche is the queer community and bringing people and making people feel comfortable. And then how that manifests for you at the table, what I'm hearing is, again, giving people that feeling of a home game and a community where they feel comfortable, they feel safe, and they can engage in the tabletop role-playing experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I share a lot of tenets with uh, one of the other top GMs, uh, Matt, uh, who, like me and him, like kind of flip-flop on the uh, leader leaderboard um, every week or so. And... His background is uh, he comes from like a, a church community building background and it's very similar, only wildly different in the ways that you can imagine um, or just already have picked up on. But uh, for that reason, you know, I think that building community is probably the one thing about sustainability and like in the business to make sure that you focus on. You have to 
actually engage with people if you're not a people person and you're trying to be a pro gm you're gonna have a hard time (laughs) and because you're dealing with people all the time so you have a customer service aspect you have the community aspect you have the fact that genuinely it really helps if you're likable so if you're not likable i mean like at least to somebody not everybody but you got to be likable to some people but that'd be the first pillar sec yeah and then the (laughs) second pillar moving on would be you need to figure out what type of game that you're going to run. And this is something, the easiest way to put this is like, you need to run something familiar yet with a twist so that you can evoke people's curiosity. So if you post a game and it's like Curse of Strahd, that's kind of boring because if you run vanilla Curse of Strahd, not only has everyone already played that, so you don't get to tap the market of the people who have played it for a little bit, didn't like the vibe entirely. But you're going to be competing with all of these other listings. Curse of Strahd is the number one campaign on Start Playing Games that I've noticed. It's the most common, at least. I would say mostly because of its good reputation. And that is mostly due, in my opinion, at this point, because it's aged quite a bit, right? And it has a lot of content in it that is no longer acceptable at a normal table. So a large part of its success is the duality of it. Like it is a gothic horror campaign that has been modified and has so much third-party content in it uh, or or available that people are really able to homebrew that campaign and still have a great, unique story with it. So if you're running like a Strahd game, for instance, I tell everybody this, and I'm sorry to the one person running Strahd in space, but run Strahd in space or like (laughs) something like that. You know what I mean? It's familiar yet fresh and has a twist it evokes the curiosity. You're trying to overcome someone looking at the marketplace and seeing all of these games. You've got, I don't know, like 20, sometimes 30 games in the same time slot on Start Playing Games. And for someone to like to look at your ad and be like, you know what, I would like to play in that game. You cannot be generic. I'm running a game that's fantasy and you'll be a hero. Go find the quest, collect the gold. Like that doesn't work. You can't just like throw it out there and like have players following at your feet. Yeah, I do want to say though, you have actually just described Tyler's perfect game. I, if, if that is all we did the entire time, I do like being the hero and getting the gold. Yeah, no, that's, over and over. I'm again. a very simple man. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to kink shame you for that. I am. I am fully in support of what you like. I'm just yeah. letting you know that in order to niche down, it's bad advertising. Yeah, it, but, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> it's it's too generic in that way. Mm-hmm. Wait, Tyler, if you go search start playing right now, you're gonna find thirty different games where it's get the gold, be the hero, get the gold again. How are you gonna pick one? My my. <laughs> what if it were golden golden space? Ooh, uh, well, see, you can't do golden space because it floats away. That's well, you just use your you know. Okay, I'm sorry fair. for them Friday. I don't know what I don't know what they're on all right now, but you know. <laughs> got a little off the rails there. Uh, yeah, okay, so that's fine. Uh, so what, what you I'm can't just though, adver- You can't just advertise a generic game. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the thing that most people seem to like get latched onto is like, hey, what's the most popular campaign that's gonna fill up? That's not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is like what's your best game because if you are passionate about a particular type of game that's really going to demonstrate it not only in the advertisement but also when you are 
bringing in new players, they're going to write great reviews about you because you are running a passionate, creative game that they want to play in. And when you have verified reviews, that is credibility that you need in order to run your business, just like on any other marketplace out there like Yelp um, or Amazon or whatever, verified reviews matter. So having people that says like, has played 40 sessions with Friday and they write like an entire whatever that saying that I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, which isn't true, but they believe it, right? That means something to people. So I think it's important to understand that you're not going to be great at everything. So be great at what you're good at. And then you can, in some way, shore up your deficiencies or the ways that you're not as great with other resources you can pay for legally and then use through like Patreon or whatever, third-party publisher type stuff. Like if you're not good at description or something like that, what I would say is just go to like describe.com and like get a subscription over there. I don't know if I'm allowed to plug my own coupon code here, but I could if your viewers want to. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. We're, you save yeah, 10% we're, with we're coupon code. with Describe. We plug okay, them good. a lot. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> coupon code Friday. You save 10%. But um, mm-hmm. if you're not very good at that, then you just go on to Describe. And then that's also going to help with your prep anyway. And it's going to streamline your stuff. The other aspect of the business is really being as streamlined as possible in order to run as many games that are going to make sense and like run games at a high caliber for longer rather than just like putting like 15 hours into prep and all of your prep is meaningless because the players took a left turn. You know what I mean? Like you need to (laughs) be very good at prep and like have resources available. It's, it's kind of complex. Third pillar, you just want to make sure that you understand what type of player joins your game and you like playing with. So there's a disconnect. A lot of people, when people post their advertisement, to where they don't quite understand who they're advertising for. And then over time, you kind of learn that I'm getting this kind of player when I advertise this way. So if I say in my advertisements, for for instance, that I allow homebrew classes and I really like homebrewing stuff and we have really extended tactical combats, and these are the things that you can do to build your character. If you provide that in the advertisement, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a bunch of number crunchers you're going to get a bunch of people who are really into (laughs) optimizing that experience so if you're advertising that way and you're putting that in your thing and then you know you get players and you don't like playing with those players you need to change your advertisement to reflect who you want (laughs) all right (laughs) and and again if you put also uh you get to be hero and get gold you will literally catch tyler like in that boy character optimization getting gold yep right there yeah. <laughs> All right. So so to recap those three and three pillars, it's know who you want to advertise to. <laughs> Correct me if I'm I'm phrasing these badly. Know who you want to advertise to. Uh, know what you run well and run that. Mm-hmm. And then make sure you're gelling with the players that you are pulling in. Did I get that right? Yeah. So you have your own profile. You have your each game's individual advertisement. And then you have the player profile, the demographic, basically, that you advertise to. And your demographic can be multifaceted, and it can like be very diverse, but you have to understand like which subset you're hitting. Got it. Perfect. Okay, so let's, let's do Crawl, Walk, Run. So I, I'm listening to the RPGBot.master Masterclass. <laughs> I now understand that potentially I could be one day a professional DM. But in order to get to my 100th game, I have to have 
my first game. Right. Uh, what do, how should I be approaching this? What should I be thinking about? Like, how do I get ready to run that first pro game? Okay, great question. There's a bazillion videos on YouTube on how to GM well. Watch the ones that you care about and you gel with. Don't worry about all the advice. You need to pick two or three people whom you believe, know, like, and trust and follow their advice. So, for instance, like say you really like B. Dave Walters. Go watch some B. Dave Walters advice. Actually, you'll find uh, a Patreon video for free on my Patreon <laughs> that has B. Dave Walters <laughs> coming and talking to my cohort. And also B. Dave like has his own products for that, right? But if you ever hear B. Dave talk about it, like B. Dave is very interested in ensuring that he represents like your style and everything like that. You can pick up on techniques from different GMs, but ultimately, like, it's got to come from you. So for me, I know my personal journey was I watched all 100 videos of Matt Colville's running the game. It was 100 at the time. Mm -hmm. I watched all 100 of them <laughs> and some of them multiple times. So that really accelerated me uh, as far as like my development. And then I was looking at also like Sly Flourish. And then I also read up on Dragnacarta stuff because I knew I was running Curse of Strahd. Ultimately, how you get there, though, is you want to run 100 to 200 amateur games before you consider going pro, because you need that experience in order to deal with the workload and the differences uh, in the clientele, the player base, um, and then also the ability to be efficient with your prep. Because if you don't have either of those things, then it's going to be very difficult. As for first steps, once you have all that, assuming all that, assuming that you have run games before for a while, doesn't matter what system. If you've been a GM in any system and you're learning a new system, that's perfectly fine. Maybe you want to practice that one a little bit before you run it on SPG. But let's say that you're a Call of Cthulhu GM. It's not that huge a leap for you to run D&D, to be quite honest. Like learning a new system, if you've already run a, another system for a while, not that big to do. Join SPG's Discord. Take the onboarding there. That's going to give you your best tips for success. They're going to have like 20 different things on best tips in their blog for how to be successful and what to do and everything like that. Um, if I'm running an ad copy workshop, you're welcome to show up. I kind of announce them in my Discord server or the SPG Discord server. Um, and those are normally 60 to 90 minutes of just me, like just rapid fire, just talking about like, this is the way that the advertisement is wrong and or how to kind of shape it up to be better. There are a lot of people who run other types of workshops uh, within the SPG community. But in general, most things that you need to do is just like sit down, decide to block out this amount of time to post the game template. Try and work on your advertisement. Figure out what you would like to do. Bring in a seed filler to fill a game. Those are like the, the major things that you start out doing at first. That's a, an interesting idea. So you say a seat filler. Describe that to folks. So a seat filler is someone that uh, has played with you before, I should hope, and that you know, like, and trust and is a friend of yours or someone you've gamed with in the past. And ideally, a seat filler is someone who is very engaging, fun to play with, helps newbies, and generally brings up the energy of the table. You are giving them, as a seat filler, a free game 
in order to post your game and have one person sitting in that seat. A seat filler does a few different things for you. On Start Playing Games, if your game arrives within like four hours of launching, like let's say it launches at noon, and at 8 a.m., if you have zero of six seats filled or zero of four or however many you have posted, then they will take it off the listing because statistically, your game firing at that point is nil. It's less than 0.01%, according mathematically on their website. So if you have at least one person in the game, that increases your odds of another person and another person and another person joining. The funny thing is, once your game is at five or six seats, those last seats fill up frequently because people want to play in games with full tables. They don't want to join a game and then wait a few weeks for it to run. So it's kind of a catch-22 right there. Some people use two seat fillers. I recommend not doing that. Um, I just do the one, and I keep them for the entire length of the game if I can. Sometimes I can't do that. but uh, And then I bring someone in else that I really enjoy playing with. And so in, in that situation, what you might do, let's say you're getting going, you've got a few games going that are recurring. You might pick a person at that table and say, hey, would you like to play with me more? If you would, I'm going to give you a free seat in another game. And then you would make that person just a recurring yeah, a recurring person at that table. Do you do you let the other folks know at the table about that prior relationship or even that, you know, hey, yeah, this is a free guest that I have with me? Or do you do maybe keep that part? I don't bring it up, but I think it's one of those awkward things. Like if for the same reason that I charge everybody at the table the same price, yeah. I don't necessarily like to bring it up. I think my seat fillers, though, have kept some games alive longer uh, then they've done harm. And a lot of the time, when these players have been at these tables for a long period of time, sometimes I bring in a seat filler to keep a game alive so I can continue it. For instance, I have a Strahd game that's at like 40-something sessions and they're closing out in the next 10. And I brought in another pro GM to join their party because like once you get past a certain amount of sessions, normally people stop joining because they're like, I want to play this campaign from like the beginning, which is less of a problem for homebrew. It's a totally different audience. But yeah, for like campaign and modules and stuff, People are like, if you, once you get past 20 sessions, people stop joining. So it's a different marketing problem, but yeah. Yeah. There's another piece of this that you bring up that's interesting. Uh, if I say like Montessori education, do you know what I mean by this? No. Um, it's a, it, it's a thing they do where they basically, I've got a bunch of kids trained on how to um, teach kids that are a little bit younger than them, like how to play basic games, how to do basic counting, write the alphabet, this sort of thing. You introduce a, another student and you let the students teach that student and then the older students move on and now the younger students learned and so they can teach the next group. Yeah. It's this idea that in a lot of ways we learn better from our peers than we do from a figure of authority. Um, I say that to say what you're describing, it, it isn't you know quite apples to apples, but it's an interesting idea of like, here, I have this person, you're going to see us interact both in the social setting at the beginning of the game and then when we actually start RP, if somebody's very comfortable at the table, they know what they want to do, they're going to interact with you without having that seat filler there. But if it's a brand new uh, table, it's a bunch of strangers all together. Maybe this is one of their first experiences in this setting. When they see one of the people at the table engaging and having that awesome RP experience, it's only going to bring it out of them more quickly. And I could 100% see how that's going to get uh, conviction for folks to say, yeah, I'm going to commit to this game. I'm going to come back next week and it's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah, 100%. Your seat fillers need to be ringers. They need to be people that are like very fun, engaging, and, you know, good role players and stuff like that. And it's helping create that experience, like that the people are 
paying for and they're coming back for. And, and you know, back towards your, your pillars, you know, obviously that ringer is going to be the kind of player that you enjoy playing with. Uh, and the behaviors that they they manifest are going to be the behaviors that you enjoy having at your table. So I can I can definitely see that positive reinforcement being very valuable uh, against kind of your three pillar philosophy. Yeah, I have generally my C fillers uh, as some of my patrons whom I played other games with in the past and I've kind of fed it that way. You can uh, set up like a relationship with another pro GM, all C fill for you for this game, you C fill for me in this other game. Um, and that can be beneficial. That's what I recommend most people do rather than like sending me your requests. Uh, not to say that I'm too famous for you, but like I get a ton of requests to like play in people's <laughs> games. And I'm just like, I run 12 to 15 games a week right now. Do you think I have time to play in your game too? I barely have time to play with my best friend. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So I, I guess this is interesting. You bring up the idea of um, vetting and this is something we wanted to ask about. Uh, do you vet players before you bring them into the game? And what does that process look like for you? Yeah, so I can see it both ways because I know some GMs do heavily vet before they bring people to their table. What I end up doing is I kick with no mercy instead of vetting heavily. So <laughs> if someone gives me the bad vibe, I kick them almost instantly because every single time I have hesitated, I have regretted it. Uh, because if you get like that vibe, your intuition is going to tell you a lot through your life experience. Like, is this going to make a bad experience for me or the other people at the table? If your intuition tells you that, you need to listen to it. And it's your space. It's your business. If you feel bad about it, just refund them. And then I don't recommend you do that. But, you know, you could <laughs> if you want to feel less bad about it. And that's something that Start Playing Games supports pretty easily. Yeah, if someone is, for instance, a bad fit for the table or they break a rule or a code of conduct thing, that's generally why you would kick someone immediately. You're allowed to remove anyone you want. I think that as far as refunds go, maybe there's some more rules that you'll need to pay attention to with the code of conduct on, on whether or not you have to refund somebody in that case. And I won't get too into that. You can go and read the code of conduct. But it's, it's more important that you preserve the table that you've got. And one of the big fears of like going with a professional GM table is that you're just going to be playing with a bunch of people you don't get along with if you show up to a table or whatever. And that can be a big reason why people don't sign on for a second or third session if they're joining a campaign in progress. So your role as a GM at that point is to not necessarily be a gatekeeper, but you need to keep the peace. And you need to make sure that everybody is vibing well and playing well together and everything like that. And if someone new comes in and they just don't vibe, you just got to be like, hey, sorry, dog. Like, this is not the game for you. Really enjoyed having you on. You, you don't have to necessarily say that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't <laughs> if they don't want them to come back. But if you hear from me like, hey, I really enjoyed playing with you. You're welcome at any of my tables. That means that I, you know, think that we will play well together. I don't send that to everyone, though, because it's genuinely not true i don't play with well with everybody i try to in a professional capacity for a show or something and of course we can but if we're talking about a long-term thing in which we're trying to work together and like enjoy each other's company all the time and i'm going to tell you about my sex life i need to like you so yeah. you know what i mean that so. feels like a reasonable barrier yeah no that, <laughs> yeah. that makes yeah. sense yeah i think yeah um have you ever had a situation where like you have a group that has joined the game and like for whatever reason you've had to like split the group like one group of players gets along really well with each other but not with the rest of the group and vice versa so just like 
I like all of you. I'm just going to put you all in different games. Have you ever done anything like that? Yeah, yes and no, but it's more often that if someone comes together with other people, if one of them leaves, they both leave or all of them leave. So if you're dealing with groups, generally that mentality is like they came here as friends, right? So even if they really like your game, like they're going to leave with the group and that's their decision. That's their right. They have a right to leave your game at any point. And I don't try to stop anybody from doing that. I ask for feedback if someone leaves my game and I don't know why, because sometimes people just like leave and it's like genuinely a scheduled thing and they just forgot to tell me or something like that. And like, they've got enough stuff going on in their life. But I always just hit them up and I send them a message if I can, if they haven't blocked me. And I send them a message. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, what's going on? Uh, if you have any feedback for me, I always super appreciate that. And I just give a very neutral message because I don't know what's going on with them. And if they want to respond, they respond. If they don't want to respond and it's awkward, they won't respond. And then you're done. And if you, sometimes you get little nuggets of information that are important for you and your business. Like for instance, sometimes I get a little nugget like, hey, this person really made me uncomfortable. And I'd be like, oh, why is that? Da, 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 da. And then I ask more about that because that's important for my table to at least understand like what's going on between the players. Mm. And I establish very heavy rules for like consent and everything like that between the players uh, for that reason during session zero. But yeah. I, I want to ask a little bit more about that. How often when you ask for feedback, do you get feedback? And have you found particular techniques that are effective for getting that feedback? Stole my question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I recently asked for feedback because I had this very big confrontation between the party and the rival party. If you've ever taken a look at like Hall of the Nether Deep. So I was running that. And the rival party confronted them within um, a place. And they it was like this big dramatic scene, this reveal. And they were like, oh, you've been the bad guys the whole time. And then some of these players had like romances with some of these other rivals. And uh, otherwise, like just antagonistic relationships and like back and forth. And it was a very storied history. We were at like session like 25 by this point. Um, so it's, it's pretty, they're, they're pretty involved and they've been involved with these guys, these people since like 20 sessions ago. And they were so shocked. I thought that everything fell flat and I was like, all right, so, Hey, what's going on? Like, did I do something wrong here? Can you just like, give me a sign please about what happened here? And they were super sweet about it. And they were just explaining, you know, they were very shocked and like they were excited about it and you know they were excited about the next session in which they most assuredly would die uh, they survived because of clever play <laughs> good they they lost still they lost the things they had their things taken from them from the rivals the important things but they still won because they survived and it was a win for them some of the time i just asked for stars and wishes probably 90 percent of my games like afterward hey if you have any stars and wishes for me i super appreciate those because they help me build a better game and thank you for playing and then that's generally like kind of my spiel but yeah for and that just leaves kind of an open door for it um sometimes i reach out and i do check-ins once i get people's feedback a couple of times during stars and wishes and people are like used to me they give me feedback like in normal conversation and it's not formal. Nice. I, I, I want to ask the question, how often do folks give you, you know, stars and wishes when you request it? Depending on the group, most groups give me stars and wishes every time I ask at least one person. 
Okay. Some people are bad about it or bad about it. Like they're not, they don't work for me, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the opposite way, but, yeah. um, and really the big thing that I kind of harp on isn't necessarily stars and wishes it's reviews because I want them to put a ton of thought into like their feedback for me. And I want to see what is so important that they would tell other people about my game. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's a, probably a better barometer of like what the actual feedback is rather than like the, Oh, great. You know, goblin, the boblin voice today. You know what I mean? So (laughs) wait, can we hear your goblin, the boblin voice? Oh, you want to hear Goblin the Boblin? <laughs> I like that. Flawless. It's like awesome. It's like just good. a little bit Bobcat Goldthwab, and I love that. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> so related to the stars and wishes thing, um, I do want to ask, what sort of safety tools do you use for your games? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I use... Just about all of them. So, oh wow! Let me look at the list. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I use a session zero. I use lines and veils. I use XN and O cards. I use aftercare. I use bleed care. I use debriefing, which I kind of use to sort of tone down like the session afterward. After we've been engaged in like a horror story for three hours, people are like amped up, and especially in like Barovia, people are like really on edge or like we leave it on a cliffhanger and people still want to hang out and chat and have that table time. So that debrief time is really great for like checking in with people and following up. If I ever have any sort of romantic encounter that I have gained consent for outside of the table before I engage in it, (laughs) then I check in (laughs) with them during the break or after, you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, that's another thing that I explicitly do is I, um, because romance is such a touchy subject and to really ruin the experience for a lot of people if they engage with it without consenting for it is that across the board, everyone, including me, has to gain permission, consent outside of the game. That doesn't mean you ask in the session. That doesn't mean that you ask like when your character is about to do something. You have to gain consent prior to outside of the game uh, in order to pursue a plot line or something like that. Because going up to someone's character and doing something weird or making a sexual joke or you know, touching them, uh, their character or something, or like trying to remove their agency in that way can really pull some people out because they may not be into it. Even if they're like into it with another player, they may not be into it with you. So it's all about like that trust and those boundaries. Um, and then for that reason, I do allow players to flirt with all of my NPCs. They may have varying reactions depending on who they are and what's going on. However, I do allow that to be open. I just check in with the players later. And sometimes if it's unclear, I ask directly, is your character flirting with this NPC? So that I understand um, as a game master. And I will interrupt the game to do that. Um, That doesn't mean that we grind to a halt and it gets awkward. It just means (laughs) that I just act directly and then I flow right into whatever the response would be. I'm imagining the meta role playing in that, though. It's like, is your character flirting with my NPC? Would your NPC be into it if my character was flirting with your NPC? <laughs> um, generally, um, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I mean, every dungeon master or game master has this problem. All of our NPCs are hot, so I don't. You know, I just don't yeah, know what. Especially Goblin the Boblin. Yeah, you know what? You say that, but like, you know, sometimes hey, people get are hot, man. You know, are hot. 
It's the little, it's the teeth. <laughs> I mean, especially if you're running a game like Vampire, that's that is probably going to be coming up quite a bit. Actually, yeah, my favorite NPC is actually this creepy Nosferatu that I play in my Vampire game. Love Nosferatu. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Like the the. The, de- the 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 strange twists and turns that people will go to uh justify a, a, a generally like kind of strange uh non-conformative relationship with an NPC because that can be fun uh I and I like to leave that open for interpretation so um a lot of players do like unusual romances within the context of the game because they feel safe enough to do it and it's not going to turn into like a creeper situation. I, I want to roll back and talk about some of the tools that you use to run your business. Uh, you've talked a couple times, for instance, about people coming onto your server, for instance. Um, what are the methods you use for communication? Like, how do you keep in touch with these folks from your games? I use Discord primarily. Right now, I have like over 300 people in my Discord from like past former players, pro GMs, uh, other people that just wanted to join my community. And I use that primarily. I have the tables kind of separated by categories and roles. So when you join my server, if you're looking to play a game, I normally like find you after I ask what your Discord ID is on Start Playing Game Messaging System. And then I send you the Discord link. They they don't have a great tracking system on Start Playing Games right now. So I have to do all that with like a Google Sheets or an Excel sheet on my end. And that's kind of an extra step uh, as of right now for running a business like this. But um, and then people change their name and their profile and then you get confused when they get billed and it's like now they're Bob instead of, <laughs> you know, Jesse or whatever they, they initially put their name as. Um, and then I and then you have like six Cheryl's in one game and, you know, you have to like sort <laughs> you have to like sort through that and like try and figure that out. But anyway, um, sorry, rabbit hole discord. <laughs> All right. Good answer. Do you use any uh, virtual tabletop systems or is it just discord? I do use Foundry VTT for all of my games. Even if I'm only running Theater of the Mind, I like to have the music mixer and I like to have the Theater of the Mind maps available that I can flip through. I like the dice rolling. Character sheets are what I use uh, on Foundry for Vampire. Maybe one day when Demi playing Fingers Crossed uh, within 2023 finishes Vampire Nexus, then I can run things through that and that will be super fun and cool. But we'll see. I'll have to check in with Adam at uh, Demi Plain, see if he can give us a timeline. Yeah, that would be Dates. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I'm in the closed alpha for the Pathfinder Nexus. It's coming <laughs> along great. And if I understand things right, like once they get it done for one, it's way easier for the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is how they keep uh, keep the people moving. It's like, it's going to be easy. It's like, it's going to be downhill from here. It's going to be great. Easy sledding. <laughs> you get to the bottom of the hill, it's the mountain. And, no, it's going to be great. I'm kidding. Everything's fine. So we, we talked a little bit about getting started. How do you, how do you think about setting prices for a game? How do you, like, do you have, do you have advice that you give for this? Yeah. Um, set the price to where you're not starving and then kind of like figure it out from there. I think that most people are so afraid to charge a living wage that they really just need to hear that more often. You should earn a living wage for the work you're doing right now. But I'm running a game. But you spent seven hours doing that. So you could have spent that, you know, at the factory or whatever job that you have, right? Or, you know, running scam ads on Google. I don't know what your job is. (laughs) Um, But... (laughs) You know, you could have been spending that time doing something else. So if you're going to do it, you may as well get paid a living wage doing it. 
Uh, the average price right now on SPG is $19 uh, as of like one or two months ago, according to Devin, who threw out that stat. And from there, I think you can kind of adjust up and down what you think it's worth. I will say that it's a strange phenomenon, but it is a phenomenon nonetheless, in which if you set your games for the left side of the average price, you get more rude players, more no-shows, more people who disrespect you, and more problems. When you go to the right and you are more expensive than the average price, you actually get less problems. But you might also get less players. <laughs> it's harder to recruit for those games, yes. Once you go to the right of the average price, you have to justify your pricing a little bit more soundly. I would say, in general, um, no one should be running games for less than $19, $20, in my opinion, per seat. Because less than that is really you're, you're dipping beneath the poverty line generally if you're trying to like justify your time i would say if you really want those five verified reviews maybe set them to 10 or 15 dollars if you're struggling to fill it at 20 but in general i would also posit to you that the reason why your games at 20 dollars aren't filling are the same reason why your games at five dollars aren't filling is because your advertising is just not good but luckily we're going to have a link in the show notes you'll be able to get some advice from friday on how to fix that and yeah, we'll have you fixed right up in no time. So um, should we roast me now? <laughs> actually, okay. But before we do some light roasting, before we do some light roasting, I, one more question on pricing. Do you do you think it matters what game you're running? Like if I'm running a more rare game, like I for instance, Ash at some point is going to be running Paranoia from us or for uh, actually a, a group of friends who wanted to run it. And it's like, okay, I know a guy who will do it. Let's go make it happen. Do that's not as popular a game, um, but there are pe plenty of people out who want to play it. Does that lead to demanding to a higher price to run that game? Y yes and no. So ah, the, both good. Yes. So <laughs> I don't have a clear answer for you. Uh, what I do have for you is the fact that, for instance, when I searched for Heart because I wanted to play it, I knew that there was only one GM running it on the website. So I found that game immediately and it joined it. And then that game filled. So, for instance, if you are trying to run something that is not as popular, you need to really focus in on what the essence of your game is, which we'll get to. We'll segue to that. I will pivot back to your actual question. So pricing, does it increase or decrease the price? It does increase if you follow the other rules I'm talking about and you know what you're advertising. If you can promise and deliver on the experience that you're advertising for, and it is what that player who wants to play that game wants, you can charge more. If you are trying to capture people who don't know what the system is, but they see it's a little bit cheaper than D&D &D that day, they might try it. However, that's not your target audience, in my opinion. So I will give you an example of like, it, when I posted my vampire first vampire game on SPG like last summer, the most expensive game at the time for vampire is like 20 bucks. And I posted mine for 40. My game filled. Why did my game fill? Because I'm me. And I posted it like <laughs> catered to vampire players who really want to play vampire. So it's really not a difference of like um, system. It's like, are you able to advertise really well for that game, for that specific player? They're looking for the right table. They're looking for the right GM. They're not looking for the game at the cheapest price. 
if you're playing the game at the cheapest price uh, sort of strategy, you're in a red ocean strategy and you're going to burn yourself out. You need to be a blue ocean strategy in which you are building your personal business to reflect what your expertise is and what you uniquely bring to the table. And you can charge whatever you need to charge to justify that in your business. It might take you longer to fill games, but that's what comes with third-party systems. And I think in descending order, we just put out the Devin just put out the new list. It's like D&D, obviously, and then Pathfinder 2, Pathfinder 1, and then under that, it's Vampire, and then Call of Cthulhu, and then a few other systems in descending order. But people don't know what they haven't played. And they might try a system they haven't played. If you can express, they can learn it in five to 10 minutes, either with a pre-gen or whatever you need to do. And it's going to be a fun experience. And you can accurately represent what type of game it is. What is it like to play that game? If you can bring that in the advertisement, in the thumbnail, in the title, and get them to click on it to at least give it a chance, you've got a shot to fill the game. Commence the roasting. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. Um, So as we're looking over at Ash's uh, game profile... (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. So so uh listeners for context. So Ash is getting up and running on startplaying.games. Um and Friday was kind enough to offer to look over Ash's advertisement for Ash's most recent game and offer some advice. Be gentle. Um, <laughs> first thing, your Twitter link is broken on your profile. It goes back what? to start playing games. No. So you should probably fix that. Oh no. How is that? <laughs> it's a bug with the ui so it's not entirely your fault um oh. yeah you need to put in the http otherwise it will default back to start oh, I, see. I don't know why it does that it just that does that is so. odd okay. so step one test your own interface once you finish filling it out always 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 look at your own profile edit your own profile as best you can to look clean and nice and spell check it as well as your advertisements Make sure that you look at your advertisement as it appears in the marketplace after you post it. So once you post it, you need to go look at it and then make sure you look at what it's next to. You're not directly competing with those people, but if you post your advertisement and you're like looking at it and you're like, I wouldn't click on this game, then you probably need to change your advertisement. Like you need to be honest with yourself. Mm. Look at yourself in the mirror. All I see (laughs) is I'm trying not to, I'm sorry, Ash. I'm not trying to yell at you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no it's okay no. i need tough love i Wait, mean we... that's a little bit of extra that's a little bit of extra cost if you want me to yell at you ass but we can arrange that later <laughs> if you want. i think that's a special service i would have to sign up it is for. a very special service yeah. <laughs> all right so as i'm looking at your thumbnail here you have like a landscape with like a figure in it Great art. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It looks like some of the provided art from Star Playing Games. What you need to do, and this is the best thing that you can do as a new GM, don't use AI art. You use the free art that's not going to hurt artists that is already being licensed and paid for. A lot of these third-party systems as well provide examples of their art and free art for you to use on this website, like Paizo and all these other companies like Cobalt Press. They want you to use their art. They want you to. It's free for you to use. This is official, high-quality art. All you need to do with stuff like that, though, is zoom in 20 to 40%. Because right now, we're just like looking at like this beautiful landscape, but there's no people in it. Nobody cares about this landscape. What am I playing here? Van Richten's Revenge? That's what the 
title is, right? That's the first part of that title. And then I look and I see like mountaintops and like someone like in the distance. I have no idea what this game is about. Just looking at that, right? If I don't know who Van Richten is, then I have no idea what this game is. And then you put a West Marches style journey across the realms of Ravenloft. So those are two proper nouns that most players do not know because West Marches is something from an earlier edition of D&D that most players don't experience because they don't go to game stores, right? Right. So that is another thing that you need to take out because that is a proper noun that people just will not understand what it is. Ravenloft, same thing. So Ravenloft, you are writing on the back of some of the marketing done by D&D. So that can work if it's positioned correctly. However, you need to be more concise about what this play experience is. So when you say Van Richten's Revenge, I think to myself, well, this is going to be a revenge story, a short campaign, maybe one to 20, 10 sessions or so, right? And then we need to position that with the thumbnail. The title right now and the thumbnail are completely at odds and they do not complement each other. Mm. You need to pick your title and your thumbnail to work together so that when you look at the thumbnail, you, when you're spending that one to two seconds and you're scrolling, it catches your eye and you stop. And then you look at the title. And then that title provides you with a little bit more information that evokes that curiosity and works with the thumbnail itself. Got it. Neither of those things are happening. Therefore, no one clicks on your image. Okay. Boom. Roasted. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have a huge word vomit on the about the adventure that nobody's going to read. I'm sorry. Hmm. But is there... is there like a sweet spot for length on the uh, the text description? One to two paragraphs. You need to keep in mind that a lot of these people who are looking for a game to play also don't have time to read your tome of lore. So just like players don't want to read your lore, they just want to know what is it about this game that makes them special? Um, because players, let's just be real for a moment. If you're a GM and you know this, players are like selfish, right? They want the experience that they're coming for. And they're paying for in this instance, right? So they want to know how they're feeling. They want to know what they can do. They want to know like what sort of adventure it is and like what they're going to experience. They need to know those things. All this lore stuff, irrelevant. I can hear the RPG purists just already just like with their pitchforks, (laughs) like you must appreciate the sanctity of the game. It's not me you have to convince. It's the players. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Look, yeah, once people sign up, you can send them like a, a gazetteer if that's a thing exactly. that they're into. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Once they was, are committed. Yeah. I think what I was trying to do was just create a, a captivating sort of intro thing. But you are correct in that it's probably not take, something someone's going to read. Yeah. Take this big, long thing, put it in your Discord. So that's okay. like the welcome info. Got it. Yeah. That's like they've already committed. You need to give a person a reason to click join campaign and spend money to join this campaign that's what the advertisement's for it's not to give them um you know a super long backstory um devin the uh founder of spg always says like sort of you want it structured like the back of a book you know what i mean like two paragraphs at the most like you need the highlights you need the highlight reel you need bullet points you need a quote you need like that sort of stuff instead of like all this stuff that you have carefully prepared and like you is important to you. You need to understand it's important to you and not the players until they join the game and they're committed. Fair enough. Right. 
so let's try and reword like Ash had the short description, the West Marches style uh, Ravenloft game. Like, how could we reword that in a way that doesn't rely on those proper nouns that players might not recognize? Great question. Um, I'm going to have to ask Ash some follow on questions in order to get you that answer. So if you don't mind, Ash, I'm going to interrogate you. Oh, boy. I can't Do I have your consent? Yes, you have my consent. Right. <laughs> cool. You can X if you need to. Oh, I probably <laughs> will. <at some> <laughs> uh, my veils what is... are physical torture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't do torture either, which is funny because I am a oh, horror GM. Uh, so torture is actually, and this happened to me just as short segue, um, because I found that some parties just got torture boners and I was just like, okay, this is not okay. And like, I, I'm not having fun role playing this NPC who's getting tortured. No. But yeah, that's why it's now like a, of at least a veil for me. And, and I'm okay with like people torturing for information, but I'm just like, I just don't want to, I'm not going to role play that. That's but anyway, um, so now torturing their emotions. I'm just being a there. good DM. That's just being a good DM. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you, what is this game? So the premise of it was that uh, there's this tower in the middle of a demiplane that's been abandoned by the, I'm trying to remember the name of the organization that's all were ravens, but Keepers of the Feather, that's what it is. Yep. Um, and basically the party's hired by Van Richten to help solve problems throughout the multiverse of the dark realms, the dark domains, or the domains of dread, I should say. So it's not just Barovia, mm -hmm. you're going to all the different domains, solving problems, and you're using this tower as sort of your base of operations, which is why I picked this picture, because it's kind of in my head what I pictured the tower looking like. Yeah, yeah. No, that's... I understand why you picked that thumbnail. But now that we've had this discussion, you understand how wrong you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... That's that's like the the classic problem with like the DM to the player perspective about like what's important. Now my follow-on question, now that you've told me what the campaign is about, now you need to actually tell me what the player experience is. What is the player experience when they play that game? Are they fighting monsters all the time? Are they doing a bunch of investigation? Is it a bunch of dialogue? Or are they is it mostly like a kind of a political game? Like what type of game is this? So it's kind of like uh Sort of, I guess the best comparison I would make is sort of like a, a monster of the week type of thing. Players are going to find talismans that open up portals in the tower to go to these different domains of dread to solve problems, uh, make investigations, maybe kill a threat or something, and also, you know, try to make the domains of dread not a, a less sucky place to live, essentially. Yeah. So essentially, a session would be like you go into a certain domain of dread, to deal with a problem there like an investigation you come back and you get rewarded and stuff like that so i felt that the reason why i put west marches with it is that i felt it was kind of a flexible game where people could drop it and drop out as they see as they saw fit and it wouldn't have a huge impact on the story yeah yeah i totally get that and you're you're, you're okay. I understand why you picked that. So the other thing I'm going to point out is it says duration four to six hours. I advise you don't do that because you're A, never make any money. And then also B, um, you're going to be super exhausted. And most players don't actually want games that are that long, I think, uh, for the most part. Uh, most pro GMs are about three hour sessions with like a break in the middle. Okay. Um, so I would advise that. And then also just for your... Uh, 
endurance and like your peace of mind, don't run four to six hour sessions. This is not like <laughs> you and your buddies. Like <laughs> I'm not saying this to be mean, but like some people you just don't want to hang out with in six hours over a call, but you're okay with tolerating them for two and a half or three hours. You know yeah. what I mean? No, that and that person fair. might be your client. You know what I mean? So, but sorry, got sidetracked. The premise of what you're trying to do is very similar in pacing tone and sort of uh setup as like a the witcher netflix series right Mm. you have at least the gerald parts right you have the presentation what is the problem right investigate the problem find out there's a twist find out there's a monster that needs to be killed in some sort and then we have resolution then we have the continuation of all the b plots going along with it and that is how a campaign like that would be structured right which fits very similarly right. to Westmarch. And it can indeed buy, be a Westmarch game. But just don't put it in the title because that doesn't mean anything to people. So For sure, yeah. For but in Discord. You, yeah, you could, yeah. Yeah, and, and you can kind of explain that and then you'll maybe... The, the, the problem is that it speaks to such a small subset of the population uh, because 5e players generally don't know what Westmarch is. That's fair. That it's not an effective use of your advertisement so that's fair and and you can get people joining who are like and they're older players and they played other editions they can be like yeah this is just like west margin be like it sure is um but you just have to layman's uh laypersons uh describe what that means so west marches would be a drop-in game got it meaning that people can join and then not disrupt the story in order to join awesome yeah that makes sense all right, Ash, you feel uh, properly roasted? Super. You got a plan? <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, good, good. Do you have a plan now? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Just l- listen to the episode on uh, 2x speed like three or four times yeah. until you ingest that's, everything. That's exactly what Ash is going to do when this comes out. He's going to yeah. listen to it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm glad it's not just me. You were really mean to me, and I was really mad. No. Yeah. Just, uh, every morning when you wake up this is your alarm clock just the volume getting larger and larger, larger. <laughs> much as, oh, oh. be better be better yeah <laughs> all right friday thank you so much for being with us today this has been tremendous yeah thank you so much for having me it's uh been a lot of fun and yeah i think that everyone deserves a living wage in tabletop and i would love it if more people became professional gms and this is a great way for a lot of people to make part-time income. Uh, I don't advise everyone become full-time because that's its own, you know, hurdles and stuff. And being a freelancer is very ups and downs. But for a lot of people, part-time is really good. No, that, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, Friday, where can folks find you online? What do you want folks to know about? Uh, well, you can just go to dollarsanddragons.com. You could look at my podcast. I talk to people in ttrpg much like this podcast mostly focusing on business oriented aspects though of tabletop and then as well as you can just find me on twitter it's friday tv uh on twitter and then i have a new supplement we'll book slash rpg we'll find out in a week um <laughs> because <laughs> you know things are going on thanks so, yeah yeah uh it was a it was a fifth edition supplement we're pivoting to a new system we're just kind of working out which one that we'd like to, um, and we're just sort of, I can't say anything about it right now because I may or may not be NDA, but we'll find out and we'll announce it when we announce it. And then uh, we will be moving forward with that. But it'll hit Kickstarter in April. Uh, it's a basic. It's based around an undead criminal organization that controls necromancy uh, through contracts 
and uh, a monopoly on the diamond trade. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that does I, I really think it's cool. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'd read that. Uh, awesome. So all the things that Friday just said that aren't secret will be links in the show notes. All the things that are secret, I can't help you. I'm not going to be able to find it. But if you follow Friday on Twitter, I bet you'll see the announcements live when they come. So go click it right now. And uh, yeah, again, thanks so much for being with us. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on rpgbot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Ash, thank you for being a good sport. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm sorry, Ash. Don't Um, be sorry. It was fun. So I think most people don't know your uh, your Discord handle, but I really wanted to make a joke about roasted celery. <laughs> oh yeah, because my, my my Discord handle is celery. So oh yeah. wow, I decided to keep that just okay, you know okay. for the people who listen Internal. after.